Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We begin today our summer series, and before I say too much more about it, I do want to remind you of how summers can be and feel a little different around here at Commons. See, for most of the time, we work really hard to unpack big ideas, and we take care with texts as we progress and thoroughly investigate them together. And from week to week, it can be helpful to know where we've been the week before so you can follow along on the Sunday that you happen to be attending, and this is a big part of why we spend a little bit of each sermon refreshing or reviewing. And this isn't because we think that you aren't smart or because we like hearing the sound of our own voices rehashing. No, that's not what it is. We really do try to tie things together. But once summer comes along, we pick up a bit of a different rhythm where, in part, we realize that many of you will be in and out as you rest and you travel and you take advantage of all the summer has to offer and we celebrate that, that's so wonderful. And this is why we often take up themes or stories that can stand alone from week to week where you don't have to track quite so closely when you're away. And that said, as always, if you don't already use one of our journals to take notes or to record your reflection, you can pick one up at our Connection Center. We're getting close to the end of this year's journal. And a side note, we as a staff are actually working hard and getting ready to go to print for our journal for next year. We're so excited about some of where we are headed together in the coming year. But the point of all that is that you can always track with us by using our journal or by staying connected with our podcast or our YouTube channel, because while you might be taking some time away during the summer, we do hope that you can check in with the meaningful work we are going to be doing in the Psalms. I'm super excited for where this journey is gonna take us, and I'm thrilled that you're gonna get to hear from a couple of other people in our community in person along the way. So, with that said, let's get to it. But before we do, let's pray for a moment. God of all, of sweeping history and daily rhythms, of expanding universe and the gentle affection that we share and hold. Give us grace today to trust the poetry and the beauty that we bear witness to in these texts that we will pick up. And give us courage to accept the ways that you shape and restore us where we are. For the friendships that support us today, we are grateful. And for this community that challenges and stretches us, we are grateful. For the affection and the care we receive, we are grateful. And for the challenge of becoming more open to each and every person that we meet, we are grateful. And we ask that you would give us opportunities to share, opening our eyes to see the ease with which grace can be extended when we have truly and heartfully accepted it for ourselves. We are present and we are known in these moments. We ask, guide us now in and by the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. Well, I, I want to jump right into our conversation that we're going to be having about this ancient Jewish prayer book, the Psalms. But first, I want to let you in on a bit of my own relationship with this collection of poetry and songs and prayers. Some of you may not know that I did my graduate work at the University of British Columbia and I studied the anthropology, the archaeology, and the literature of first century Palestine because I'm a nerd. 
And also because I wanted to be a biblical scholar at that point in my career. And this is why I chose to not go to seminary, but instead I dove headfirst into the critical study of ancient texts and the cultures that produced them. And I worked with some amazing people along the way. I met some amazing students. And most of these people that I spent my life with didn't share my theological views or experience. And anyway, as I proceeded through my master's program, I went further and further down into my study of how the scriptures are historical texts and what the problems and the issues are when we treat them that way and how we can understand the claims that the scriptures make. And as I did this, I found that the Bible was getting further and further away from me. And by this I just mean that if you were to imagine the scriptures having a voice, to me it felt as if that voice was moving further and further away from me. It was getting fainter and fainter where the questions and the demands of my research, which centered on the Gospel of Mark actually, they left me wondering whether or not Jesus ever actually said the things that are attributed to him. Which put me in this really interesting place where for a couple of years, I couldn't really read the Bible. Which was difficult because the stories and theologies of the scripture had been more than a professional pursuit or a passing hobby for me. I'd really loved the text since I was a kid. And this situation persisted for a long time with one significant exception, the Psalms. Where in my efforts to push with rhythms of quiet and meditation to try and keep myself in discipline, which I think is important whether you're gonna be religious or not, I kept finding myself drawn to these texts that we're gonna be looking at over the next several weeks. In part, I think, because they were once or they were one place in scripture I could go where my intellect and my curiosity were not the most effective lens for receiving or interpreting them. This collection of ancient poetry and lyric and communal hymns actually required a completely different approach from me. It didn't need me to figure out if it was right or how its history should shape how I should read it. It just asked me to read, to let the text say for me what I was struggling to say to let the text give permission to my doubts, and to let the text invite me into hope and worship even when all I felt was cynicism. And I didn't know this at the time, but the Psalms were grounding me in that season when my experience was causing parts of who I was to shift and the theological formulas I'd used were increasingly ineffective and it could do this because, as Marilyn Robinson says, the scripture and the Psalms situate the testimony of the sacred in fallible human voices. Whereas you read, you feel the burden of the author's humanity. A burden that because it's in the story, we learn to see as holy, where our lives and our difficulty and our worship and our anxiety, our anger, our selfishness, our hope and our depression, all these things find a place in the story we tell about who God is and about who we are and nothing gets left out, which is what made these texts believable for me. This way the Psalms have of bringing all of our experience into the conversation we have with God and with each other, that's what helped me to trust them. And along the way, learn to trust my doubts and God's goodness at the same time. Which is how I wanna encourage you 
to use the Psalms as we move through them together because I can almost guarantee that at some point this summer, we're gonna be reading something that leaves you feeling, you know what, today, I can't say that. Or I can't believe that right now. Or maybe the Psalms will raise questions for you about whether God is good because the poet asks that question for themselves. And if you find yourself in places like that, I'm encouraging you now, take note. Pay attention to how these texts give words to the things you feel more than you could say. And pay attention to how the complexity of your story right now is incorporated into the tale of God's people stretching back into the ancient world where no question, no anger, no distress, and no lack of faith leaves us on the outside looking in. Where you begin to see that your life and really all of the craziness and the injustice and the darkness in the world around us, these things are named and acknowledged as places where God is always working. Which is this really great place to start from with our psalm text for today, which as I teach this summer, I wanna make a point of reading the entire psalm whenever possible to all of us. So today, Psalm 13. For the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fail. But. I trust in your unfailing love, and your, or my heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And right off the top, I think it's important to note that for those of you who are working on your random Bible trivia skills, this is one of 150 psalms which is this diverse collection of writings that cobbled together over hundreds of years by the Hebrew people. And between now and when we start up our fall schedule together, we're actually gonna be looking at nine different poems like this one. And if that gets you thinking and gets you curious, you should know that we actually went through several Psalms three years ago, and you can find those in our uh, podcast feed if you're looking for more road tripping material. But This doesn't mean that we're actually going to ever get to all 150 Psalms. It's gonna take us like 25 years if we do that. We're not committed to that. It just means that this year we're covering some new material because there are several different kinds of Psalms, which we're gonna say more about in each of the coming weeks. But I'm gonna point to you today that this poem we read just now is a poem of lament which is the largest classification of poems in the Psalms. It makes up about a third of the entire collection. We're gonna talk more about that in a second because one of the things that strikes us immediately as we read this poem is the accusatory tone that the poet takes with the divine. 
And you might not have picked up on it right away, but other translations can really help us see this, which is what notable scholar Robert Alter recommends we do with the poems we find in the Psalms because of the nuanced ways that Hebrew gets translated into English. So if you're reading the poems or the Psalms for yourself this summer, make sure you have a couple of options to compare, okay? So as we do that now, we look at the New Living, which is a more recent translation, which translates this same poem this way. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with the anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? And how long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Or what about Eugene Peterson's take, which we see in his translation called The Message, which says, long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough I've carried this ton of trouble and lived with a stomach full of pain. And for lots of readers in cultures like ours, if we account for this tone, which is certainly present in the Hebrew, sometimes what happens is we can feel increasingly uncomfortable with it. Because for one, it's not very tidy. And it doesn't feel particularly pious or reserved, which are the features of many of our spiritual practices and traditions, because it is an accusatory lament, which in the Jewish tradition was and is not antithetical to devout and fervent relationship with God. No, as Walter Brueggemann argues, this tone pops up all over the Hebrew Bible, because in the Hebrew imagination, a true believer needs to have the freedom to take up these kinds of words. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Because for most of us, crucial relationships with our closest business colleagues, or our team members, or our dearest friends, or the partners that we live with, these relationships demand open and honest and frank communication. There's often a correlation between the intimacy of a relationship and the degree to which clear accusations can be made in that relationship. Where we say to another person, hey, you are not holding up your end of this. Or we ask another person, hey, what's going on? Why are you withdrawing? Why are you disengaged? And this kind of model for our spiritual lives can be super helpful where we come clean with God when we feel distant from God, or when we question if the divine is doing anything to solve the problems of our world or deal with the people who are causing them, or if we find that as we think of God, we start to feel angry, we feel this tense sort of knot in our stomach and we don't know why. And here, in Psalm 14, the poet offers us a model for offering our fear and our frustration, and our disappointment, all as poetry and as prayer, as holy and honest relationship-building communication. And if that seems like a bit of a jump for you, consider how Brueggemann contends that where the ability to lament in our connection to God is absent, what what happens is that we basically construct a faith built with a false self. Just like in those human relationships I mentioned a second ago, when we choose to smooth over our true feelings, or we avoid conflict with somebody we love, or when we're dishonest with somebody who is hurting us repeatedly, 
And Brueggemann contends that not lamenting leads to forms of faith that are based on fear and guilt and lived out of resentful and self-deceptive efforts to do the right thing all the time. And he argues, quote, the absence of lament makes a religion of coercive obedience the only option that we have, which I hope leaves you with at least one thing to walk away with today, the courage to be honest with God. Maybe, maybe you felt like faith is a bit of a sham, where all we ever seem to do and say here is the good stuff. Maybe you've been doing or you've been going through some challenging things in your life recently and without knowing it, you actually do feel like God is pulling away or that there's this distance, like God is quiet and inactive in the situations that you face. Or maybe you live in the world and you have trouble, quite rightly, reconciling belief in God with all that's wrong and corrupt and harmful. And let me assure you to say the most honest thing you can say of to God is not unfaithful. To try and articulate your lament and your longing isn't toxic. The poet shows us that it's devout to say these things. And it has the potential to grow affection in us which is the foundation of all intimate relationships where we call each other to be better and more engaged versions of ourselves, even in our connection with the divine. But to be clear, that's just one way that we can interact with the Jewish Psalms of lament. And I wanna take the work of Carlene Mandolfo as an alternative, for instance because she notes that this lament language was present all over the ancient world, in funerary rites in various cultures like the dirges of the Greek playwrights, which were set to music that wasn't unlike Chopin's funeral march, which some of us might know. But what Mandolfo does is she contrasts these types of lament and mourning in the ancient world, she contrasts them with the Psalms, which she sees as employing heavy emotions and vocabulary as what she calls crisis language, less grieving and more call for reparation. And Mandolfo argues that justice seems to be the most pressing concern of these lament psalms, like the one we read today, which you could hear in the poet there, where the poet doesn't actually admit any fault for where they've ended up and how their predicament's so bad, but demands that God make things right. And this seems to me to be such a clear invitation, especially when we consider Derek Suderman's observation that we have a tendency when we read the Psalms to only hear our own voice as the speaker in the psalmic poetry. And this is a tendency that we might correct by taking Psalm 13 with us out into the world and asking ourselves where we might see or hear lament today. And of course, people around us are probably not asking for divine retribution like the poet does in Psalm 13, but people are lamenting. People are longing for change. People are burdened and limited and calling for justice. Maybe this week you could take a few minutes and listen to Chief Dan George's Lament for Confederation from Canada's centennial celebrations in 1967. 
And I quote him here, when I fought to protect my land and my home, I was called a savage. When I neither understood nor welcomed this foreign way of life, I was called lazy. When I tried to rule my people, I was stripped of my authority. And he says this in this powerful spoken word performance in the 1960s. And his sorrow echoes into contemporary anguish over the well-being of our indigenous peoples, I think. Whether it's their access to basic services or their higher rates of incarceration. And I'm not trying to make those things seem simple. Those are complex issues, for sure. But those are issues that we need to strain to hear the lament in. Or maybe, maybe that's just too ethereal, too out there. We need to bring it a little closer and make it a little smaller and choose to hear that colleague or that acquaintance that's always pushed to the side and they're just left there, maybe because of their gender or because of their religious convictions or their culture or even for some opinion that they've spouted online. Or choose to hear the critique of a lover or a friend, a child, a partner who needs more from us. This person is vulnerable and they're asking for us to step toward them. And all of these, whether they're big macro social issues or they're the things that happen in our daily life, all of these are opportunities to let the Psalms of lament lead us beyond sadness for someone else's experience and pick up to whatever degree we can and we should the work of justice that our world desperately needs from us. Which brings us to the final verses of this poem where the writer, after speaking of this difficulty and despair they feel in their relationship with God and calling on God to make things right, they start speaking all of a sudden of how they trust God's unfailing love and how they're singing of divine goodness. And if you're like me and more than a few scholars, you probably wonder what causes this rapid turnaround. One minute, literally, this poet is ranting being super uber honest, and the next minute they are all mellow and balanced, and they're totally at ease, it seems. And if we read uncritically here, we might be tempted to assume that the last few lines erase or negate the passion of the poem's beginning. And to read like this would be to perpetuate a theology that believes that we should always be moving from lament to worship, and that that's the only way to move in life. And that the transition that takes us from lament to worship is always seamless, when in fact, Robert Alters argues that a careful reading notes this transformation that the author goes through for sure. A change so large in fact that Alter claims this poem actually almost changes in genre. It goes from being a lament psalm to being a celebration psalm. And this fluidity of genre is an expression of poetry's dynamism, yes. But more importantly, it's a mirror, I think, of how you and I ch change. How we transform in the middle of our everyday lives, too. Because, see, the writer doesn't show us the secret passage that God sneaks through to save the day in the poem. And they don't go through this long explanation of the changes they made, the things they tried, the books they read, the habits they started, the help they enlisted to be better at attracting God's attention and help. No, this poem leaves the unseen places of the poet's life 
those moments of excruciating change and unforeseen alteration, it leaves those things out of sight, which I submit to you is why I think you should trust this poet. Because isn't life like this? We've probably all had some moment where you felt like God's too quiet to be any good. And whether through our own neglect of good living or some bad choices we made or through the way that life teaches us and stretches us and wears us down and lets us down, it disappoints us and it makes our hearts brittle and suspicious. And if your experience and all you might be going through right now leaves you asking the poet, how could you ever come to trust in God's love? Or maybe something more like, how in the world do I figure out how to be like that? If that sounds familiar, first I want you to hear again the encouragement from the beginning of our time today. The questions like these aren't bad. They're not gonna somehow disqualify you. But then secondly, I want to encourage you to rest knowing that trust isn't something that you will ever manufacture out of religious devotion. Trust just grows in us. That's the promise of the poem. That in our unseen moments, in the years we spend working through the baggage of our childhood trauma, and sometimes it feels like we're just spinning our wheels, in the moments where no one sees that we choose to be open to God or to others, or we risk vulnerability in a relationship, in the repeated attempts we make to be better professionals and better friends and better partners and better parents, and in the quiet ways we learn to advocate for those around us and we, found, we find a voice for the justice in our own community, in these and a hundred other seemingly mundane twists and turns the poet tells us, we find that God is not far from us and that we are not beyond rescue, but that in fact the goodness of God has sustained us and turned our lament into trust. So, as you go out and you live the rest of this week, may you learn to use the Psalms and let them work for you as you work with them. May you take up their invitation and use their words to be honest with God. And may you catch sight of the unseen ways that God's goodness is teaching you to trust that you are never alone. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we are present and profoundly aware of how ancient poetry has this way of cutting right to the core of where we sit and where we live today. And we are grateful for that witness that we sense and that we see. And even for those of us who might be a little more withdrawn, a little more distant, and from that place, quite rightly, we stand back and we say, ah, oh, I'm not quite so sure yet. I'm grateful that you hold us and you invite us to stand at whatever proximity we can you, I, you allow us to contemplate these things and stretch them and allow them to stretch us. And so I ask that you would give us courage to use this poetry. 
learning that nothing in our everyday lives isn't represented in these lines that we will read this summer together and learning to just parallel our journey with that of your people in the text. Teach us and shape us to be honest people, honest with each other, but yes, also with, with you. Learning that honesty is a way of leaning in no matter how harsh it feels, no matter how sacrilegious we sense we might be, knowing that these things can't disqualify us. And I ask too that you would help us as we learn this process of lamenting. This won't be the last lamenting psalm we look at, but I pray that you would give us courage to seek justice with these poems and these poets as our guide. In time, trusting that what's unseen in us the way that your spirit is always at work and faithfully present to us, learning to see the change that you are shaping in us day by day. This is our hope today. We hold it because of the God we see in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.